I'm Jeannie Phillips, and welcome to Vermont Ed Reads. We are here to talk books for educators, by educators, and with educators. Today, I'm with Judy Dow, and we'll be talking about Hidden Roots by Joseph Bruchak. Thank you for joining me, Judy. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Well, I'm currently working for Gadakana, a Native organization that is throughout New England, and um we have an educational component where we um, want to educate our students about culturally appropriate and historically accurate books. And we want to educate other students uh, that are not Native about the same thing. Um, our hopes are this education will prevent bullying or limit bullying and a little bit more um, understanding between both cultural groups. Um, through Gadakina, I'm working in the Wyndham Southeast Supervisory Union. It's a district in the southeast corner of the state. We're trying to um, develop a curriculum program that will match with H3, the new bill that um, addresses ethnic studies being taught in core curriculum. And uh, so the book I'm currently reading is one I read many, many times. Um, it's Hidden Roots by Joe Bruchak. Excellent. I cannot tell you how excited I am to have you on the podcast. Um, we've been friends since we took a trip together, and I just, you're such a wealth of knowledge. So I'm just so excited for this conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today. Great. <laughs> so um, I always like to ask my guests, because I, I, I like to build my to-be-read pile, what they're reading. What, do you want to talk a little bit about, besides Hidden Roots, what you've been reading lately? Sure. Um, I've been trying to read a lot of old favorites um, so I could recommend them to teachers. And some of the children's books that I've been reading um, are, or rereading is March Toward the Thunder by Joe Bruchak, um, which is a Civil War story um, about an Abenaki um, boy who lies about his age and joins the Civil War to help um, his family find a place to live in Vermont. And Thanks to the a Animals by Alan Sockabason, which is a, um, a younger picture book um, about Zuzop, uh, a little baby that falls off a sled and the animals care for him. Muskrat Will Be Swimming by Cheryl Savageau. Um, is about bullying and um, name-calling, and it's another um, very pertinent book for today. And one of Joe's new ones, Two Roads, is um, about um, a young man who finds out he's Choctaw from his father who was trying to hide it from him, and they separate in life for Two Roads. The young boy has to go to an boarding school, and the father goes to... Washington to protest um, against the bonus checks from World War One. They want them earlier because it's the Depression and they're they're losing their home. I'm also reading Race Talk and the Conspiracy of Silence by Daryl Wing Sue, understanding and facilitating difficult dialogues on race. Very good. Lots of vignettes that will um, that are based on classroom experiences. That's so very helpful. The other one is right, White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism by Robin D'Angelo. And that is also uh, a very good book. 
Those are excellent suggestions. I'm really excited to dig in. I have some questions already from this that um, aren't even on our list of questions. And the first one is I want to just talk about, um, I wondered if you would talk about your identity. And you used the word Abenaki. And um, as when I came to Vermont, um, I have heard a lot about the Abenaki, but you pronounced that word differently. And I wondered if you wanted to talk about that. Uh, sure. So the word Wabanaki describes the people of the Northeast. Waban is white, Aki is land, people from the white land or the dawn land where the sun first rises. And the English pronounced that word as Abenaki. And along the Hudson River Valley into New York were large Dutch settlements and they said Abenaki. The French, however, had no sound for W. They took the word Wabanaki and made it Abenaki. So you can tell someone's ancestral background by how they pronounce the word. And my first language is French. So um, it's pretty difficult for me to change Abenaki to Abenaki at this point in my life. How do you recommend that I, as a white Vermonter, pronounce the word? Um, I guess you could probably pronounce it any way you'd like, but you might want to ask the people you're talking to what they would prefer to be called because they may have a preference. Um, they may prefer Abenaki or Abenaki or Wabanaki. And I think just simply asking them what they prefer would be the best way to handle it. Great. So during this um, podcast, then I'm going to use the word, the w- pronounce the word the way you pronounce it and say Abenaki. Sounds good. Okay. Would you, um, before we launch into Hidden Roots, which is just such a beautiful book, I reread it. Um, I had read it years ago. But before we get into discussion of Hidden Roots, could you could you um, give us a little history of Vermont and the Native peoples who lived here? And I guess this is another place where I want to ask you about a preferred term. Um, uh, you know, I have heard, I have known folks in the past who preferred to be called Native Americans. I've known folks who preferred to be called Indians. I've known folks who preferred to be called um, just Native. And I, I wonder if if you could offer us a preferred term. Well, again, I, I know what I prefer, but the person you're speaking to may have a different preference. So it would be best to ask what they would refer. But just as you might visit another place like Canada, you would say American. You were American. Um, Abenaki people might prefer to be called Abenaki. Mohawk people, Mohawk. Um, The linguistic group they belong to is Iroquoian or Algonquin. So you, you might refer to them as an Algonquin speaking person or a First Nations person or an indigenous person. Um, and the um, so I, I think the best thing is to ask what people would prefer to be called. Um, everybody has their different thoughts. The, the term Indian is interesting for me because I've spoken to a lot of elders and asked them why they use the term Indian. And they have often told me things like, well, all the books are written so that uh, um, the stories about Indians and I want my grandchildren to know and my great grandchildren to know that those stories about us, we are the Indians they're talking about. 
So they frequently use the word Indian to discuss um, who they are and, and to self-identify with who they are for the purposes of allowing their grandchildren and great-grandchildren to know who, who their ancestors were. Hmm. So you're making me think a lot about... Um I think especially in schools, right, we teach um, Native American units, say, and people use that phrase. And it makes me wonder about um, the generalization when we use something like Indians or Native Americans. Um, and sometimes, like, I've been using indigenous more, and I like the Canadian term First Nations. Mm-hmm. And what I like about First Nations is that it's plural as opposed to grouping everyone together. Yeah. So sometimes Native Americans or American Indians are so generic, it leads people to believe that um, they're all the same, and they're really not. Every nation is distinct and different in their ethics, morals, and values. And, um, and that needs to reflect in what you call them. And that's why it's so important to call them by what they want to be referred to as. And... Um, and I think that um, Native American can refer to um, anyone born here as well. So that adds to the confusion. Um, I think you see a lot more American Indian east of the Mississippi and Native American west of the Mississippi. So there's differences across the country as well. This is so helpful to me as I think about um, the way we teach Um and especially thinking about this preference to ask people what they prefer to be called. And I think one of the problems is that we often teach um, First Nations people as if they're only in the past. Yes, correct. Which is very problematic because they still exist today. And it's the goal of this country to make us invisible so we eventually disappear. And by only talking about us in the past, that's exactly what happens. We become invisible. That's part of the problem. Yes. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I could talk to you for days. Let's jump into this book. Do Am I right that uh, Joseph Bruchak is a friend of yours? Yes. So. I'm working right now on a project to get him to... Um, the Wyndham Southeast Supervisor Union um, for February to do presentations for the students down there. I think the students will enjoy him um, and his son Jesse are both coming. They're um, very animate in how they tell their stories and and I think they could probably answer some questions for students about their writing. Excellent. Oh, I would love to know more about that. Maybe I'll... Um try to spell for an invitation. <laughs> um, so Hidden Roots is set in the 1950s, and I wondered if you would introduce us to Howie, the main character in the book. Sure. Howie's an 11-year-old boy who lives in Sparta, New York with his parents, and um, in this story, it's along the Hudson River. Um, he's sometimes called Sonny. It's his nickname um, that he's gotten because He's the son of his father, right? And they're uh, very much the same. He has a troubled life because of a family secret that he hasn't quite figured out yet. And his father is angry um, most of the time for lots of reasons. But 
um, pri primarily there's historical trauma being passed from one generation to the next generation that's not being addressed or talked about. And so there's lots of lessons within this book. Yeah. Ooh. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read um, from uh, page 32 of the book um, because it sets a nice scene for us, I think, about Howie's relationship with his uncle, Lewis. I didn't know much about Indians, except what I heard in school or saw in the movies. I knew they were mostly all gone, dead, or had run off to the West. Real Indians, I mean, who rode horses and hunted buffalo and all of that. People in Sparta talked about those dirt-poor half-Indian families that lived up on the other side of the mountain. But they weren't real Indians from what I'd heard. They lived in shacks, not teepees, and they didn't ride horses. They rode around in old jalopies. They didn't even wear feathers. I was told they had a lot of kids, but I never met any of them because I went to school in Hadley. I'd heard how the forests were wilder in parts of Vermont than they were in our Adirondack Mountains. It made me think that maybe some real Indians had been able to hide out in those Vermont forests. The movies had taught me that real Indians could be dangerous, so they were likely the ones who had done the bad things that made Uncle Lewis leave. But I'd never been to Vermont or talked to anyone who had been there other than Uncle Lewis, so I couldn't say for sure. Mom told me that we still had some distant relatives in Vermont, but I'd never met them. I assumed that was because they didn't like us. I was excited this morning. As we drove toward the dawn, Uncle Lewis was behind the wheel of his old blue Plymouth, and I was right next to him. So it's early in the morning, and Howie's sort of thinking through what he knows about real Indians as he and Uncle Lewis are visiting Vermont. And I, I think this really illuminates something that you said earlier about um, the way we teach Indians and about erasure. Um, and using that term Indians, I'm going to actually use the term Abenaki or, um, uh, and wondered if you wanted to talk a little bit about um, the history of the Abenaki people in Vermont. Um, yes, I can do that. But I want to just address um, Howie's words first, if I could. Please. Um, Howie is, has come away with just about every stereotype you can think of, right? They're dangerous. They're they're ignorant they just ride around in jalopies and live in shacks they're lazy and poor and and those stereotypes is what contributes to um invisibility and problems and at this point in the book he has those stereotypes because that's what he's learned from the people around him his family has not addressed the fact the historical fact that he's actually an indian are a Native American or a Beneke. He's, they've not addressed any of that with him. That's part of his family secret that is causing the turmoil within the family. So uh, the history. So um, in it, between 1925 and 1937, Vermont ran a program called the Vermont Eugenics Survey. And in that program, they were looking to create a better person, a better human. And they thought that um, through subjective research, they could identify defects, de who was dependent and who was delinquent, the three Ds. And um, so there was about 17 surveys within this greater survey. And each one directed um, a group of people to find um, 
without an answer, like an ethnic studies or, or uh, pedigree studies. Each one um, directed them down a path to determine who was defective, delinquent, and dependent in an effort to create a better Vermonter, as Nancy Gallagher says in her book. Um, let's see. It was a national program. It was an international program. Um, Henry Perkins, the director of Vermont Eugenic Survey, at one time was the president of the national um, program. And um, he truly believed just as you could breed better cows, better cows to give more milk and better horses to run faster, that you could breed better people. And he was specifically interested in French Canadians, poor African Americans, and French Indian people living in Vermont. And those were pretty much the categories he targeted. Um, and as I said, a lot of the reporting was subjective. I think just that question of what's it mean to be a better Vermonter is very subjective. Who gets to decide exactly what better is? Exactly. Um, I'm stumbling here because um, uh, Hidden Roots talks about 1925 to 1937, but today Vermont is doing some of the same things. And um, so, for instance, um, in, in the 30s, Dorothy Canfield Fisher, a, a eugenicist, um, wrote publications for the state of Vermont in which she was encouraging tourism and second homeowners to only those who were professionally trained to use their brain for a living. And she specifically names doctors, lawyers, professors, and so on. And then... Um, she specifically names in the brochures who should not be looking for a second home and talks about those in manufacturing, which, of course, which, which was where most of the poor and the French-Canadian and French-Indians worked, right? And bankers. And the reason she did not want bankers is because they were primarily Jews. Um, and so in Vermont today, I know in Bellows Falls and in Wilmington, and um, the state have offered $10,000 to people who would move here. They could don't have to really work here or be a part of living here. They, ha they can work remotely, but they'll be paid $10,000 to move here, which is very similar to what was happening in the promotions of the 30s, where they were encouraging a certain class of people to come. Um, and I think Hidden Roots um, creates a jumping off place in which you can carry that conversation on for today. They're not providing opportunities for the poor to move. They're not um, considering even the poor they're um, they're creating a, 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 a dichotomy of those that have and those that don't. Yes. And um, and by bringing people that have in, the dichotomy just gets bigger. Yeah. I totally hear that, and I really appreciate you connecting current policy to past policy in this way, and um, and connecting this book 
which is set in the 50s, is really written about the 20s and 30s, the baggage or the trauma of the 20s and 30s, um, to what's currently happening in the, the like sort of critical lens you can put on contemporary policy. Mm-hmm. It's frightening for me. Um, my father used to say to me, um, I can't believe people pay you to talk. I'd pay you to shut up. And it's not until this current administration that I began to realize he was protecting me. He was trying to get me to not talk about eugenics. Um, There are many people in the Burlington area who were first targeted who will never put their name on a list to say who they are because they're afraid they'll be targeted again. It's a memory that's very close. Yeah. Well, and you've been really um, brave. Um, in bringing up these conversations, Judy, I know that you were an important part of getting the name of the Dorothy Canfield Fisher Award uh, book award changed. Um, and you've stood up uh, in other places, too, to have the names of um, prominent eugenicists removed from um, buildings and organizations. Yeah, um, I've always been upset when I've seen um, Bailey Howe library and places like that. Um, But it wasn't until I had grandchildren that I began to realize it was important to set the record straight. They needed to see who these people really were. And especially Dorothy Canfield Fisher, a woman who served on several subcommittees and actually turned names in of children who needed to be institutionalized I I felt to attach her name to a children's book award was the most egregious thing I could think of I just want to thank you for your efforts and your courage in that work it really means a lot thank you um oh goodness let's get back to Howie shall we sure (laughs) um Uncle Lewis um this really important person in Howie's life. While his dad, Howie's dad is really angry and bitter and um, he's working really hard at the factory and he's pretty emotionally unavailable to Howie. Uncle Lewis is very available to him. Um, he um, takes him out into the woods and spends time with him and they're quiet together and they talk together and they go on these trips and um but there's something that's connected to the last passage I read on um, page 55 that I think is also connected to what we were talking about, about erasure. Uncle Lewis and Howie are out near a reservoir. What was it like clearing trees for the reservoir? Hard, he said, but the woodwork wasn't the hardest. The hardest was to clear away the houses and shacks and the people who was in them. The word shacks made me think of the poor half-Indians on the other side of our mountains. Were they Indians? I asked Uncle Lewis. Some of them used to be, he said, turning his face toward the peaks rising to the north of town. What do you mean, I said. I didn't understand how Indians could stop being Indians. Yeah, um, that's kind of a sad passage, right? Um, So during this period of time, it wasn't safe to be known as an Indian or a Native American. it wasn't till roughly the 70s that the word Abeniki was being used in the state. Um, but 
it wasn't safe because of the Vermont eugenics survey, right? And so many people assimilated. They they passed as white, and their culture and their history and their language was slowly disappearing. Others hid in plain sight. They just um, lived life day by day, not doing anything that would stand out. So, for instance, um, we would have a kitchen junket every Sunday night at my family, um, which is typical French and French Indian, right? We'd get together, my father would play the concertina, and we all play the spoons and sing and have fry bread. And um, that was done on a dirt dead-end road on... Um, in South Euro where all my cousins, aunts, and grandparents lived. But if we had used some big, enormous drum to celebrate on Sundays with our fry bread, it would have drawn attention to people. Um, the most common thing was, um, oh, the Indians are on the war path again. And the sheriff would come and talk to you and um, if you made too much noise. So adapting to changing times was critical for survival. So in order to hide in plain sight, you had to blend in. Um, the, in the, um, this period of time, if you walk down Church Street in Burlington, 65% of the people there spoke French, and that's what you heard on the streets. And so even speaking French um, was kind of pushed within the community. Um, but there was ways in which um, in which um, people coded the stories to protect you. So there was uh, a character that, uh, called Baptiste Pabanu, and Danielle Tremblay um, wrote about this character in code. It came out in the newspaper every Wednesday. And it was usually the top front page to address the French-Canadian, French-Indian population. And it, it was um, a collection of stories about a bumbling Frenchman who did one thing or another. But in code, it was really lessons to be learned for the French and the French-Indian people to survive. And so on Wednesday nights, people within the communities would get together they would read Baptiste Pavanu and, um, and discuss what the code was. They would decode it and figure out what lesson that week he had for them to protect themselves. Wow, this sounds like an amazing primary source document. It is. Um, I, as a child, um, there, my father um, and would sit us all on his lap and he would read the stories to us and he'd say I tell you these things because you have to be careful just like in the book with Howie um, things talked about at home stay at home and um, and so um, when I got older when I was in high school they were published in a book some of the stories and then my father would read them again. He got this all, got my sisters and I a copy of the book. He kept saying, it's important. You have to know this stuff. And so he'd go through it. And so in recent years, I've, um, I've 
written the stories and decoded them in writing um, for my grandchildren because times have changed little and they have to know these things. This is reminding me of the talk, which is what a lot of um, people of color talk about the conversations they have to have with their children about the police or about um, being black in public, right? And Mm -hmm. so it's reminding me a little bit of that, um, actually a lot of that. And um, it's also, I'm having this like waves of emotions as you're talking about this, Judy. And um, so I'm just doing a check here with you. I'm hearing this like cleverness, this like, like really amazingly brilliant approach to communicating in code with a whole community of people, which is so clever and interesting. I'm hearing about story, which also just delights me. And then I'm hearing about sort of this push for willful assimilation to survive and like the way in which um, people are teaching their children to hide their culture for their survival. And that's like just filling me with grief. Mm, It is sad. Um, And those are things um, Betis Pabinu addresses in in the scenarios that Daniel Tremblay has written. Um, He, um, Pabinu, is not really a last name it it means the one who puts on airs and he puts on airs to survive so he applies for a job in uh, chicago in one of the stories and um he he goes in for the interview and uh the lady asks him what is his name he says baptiste babanu and don't you forget and she goes, what nationality are you? And he says, I'm Irish. Well, because in Chicago at the time, being Irish would get you the job, not being French. French would not get you the job. And so he puts on these airs. And so the stores are bumbling. And back, back home here during that time, many uh, Francos were anglicizing their names. So Rivier became river and so on and so forth. Um, But you get the idea. So that leads, uh, this leads me to the next quote, which is just uh, this title, Hidden Roots, and then all of these ways that Indians are, that the Abenaki are hiding in plain sight and um, this need to hide and assimilate. And the next quote I had picked out Um, was just about that same idea. Um, He says, Uncle Lewis has taken um, Howie um, out into the woods and they're praying together. He's introducing Howie to this way of praying, and I believe they're watching the sunrise as they pray. And he says, is it all right us praying like Indians that way? I asked Uncle Lewis as we were climbing back down the mountain. Long as no one sees us, he said. And that feels really... um, relevant given your story of your kitchen junkets and of the um the the advice on how to assimilate hiding in plain sight in the newspaper and um and so it made me wonder knowing you and the uh, the scholar you are on the eugenics movement in vermont um and i guess you've already answered this to some degree about the impact that eugenics had on the identity of abenaki people in vermont well, a lot um, didn't 
self-identify for safety reasons. And so it's left future generations floundering on, on the fact of who they are. Um, the previous generation tried to hide a lot of things to protect people. Um, the, so these generations find it difficult to find the documentation to prove who they are, to prove how they lived. And they also get confused um, with the eugenics records. So there's both positive and negative records in the eugenics records and the Vermont eugenics records in that what a good family would look like and what a family that was defective, dependent, and delinquent would look like. And so many times when people see their name in the records, they're like, oh, I have to be Indian. I was in the records. But they were not in the records f for the reasons that the eugenicists were um, targeting people. They were in for other reasons. And so it totally, their lack of knowledge totally impacts the, their direction in life in reclaiming who they are. Um, so what I hear you saying is that just because your name is written down in the records as one of these three Ds doesn't mean that your family was a Beneke. It could mean that they were just poor, that they lived in a way that was not condoned by the popular mores and norms of the time, or that they were um, French-Canadian. Correct. So the three Ds was the negative eugenics, right? Um, and, and in searching for three Ds, they were looking at immigrants or people they deemed to be immigrants, like French Canadians, French Indians, African Americans. But when you look at history from Burlington North, that was part of New France. So they weren't really immigrants. Um, this was their traditional homelands, right? For the Abenaki and the French Canadians. And so they're... There, I've heard anthropologists talk before that anyone north of Route 2 with a French surname is probably from French Indian descent. And so those were the people um, after the flood of 27 who were poor and struggling and had lost their homes in some cases because they lived near the rivers, um, were struggling and and Henry Perkins was constantly writing in the newspapers that um, they were ruining his vistic views. And I'm like, you know, shocked because these people are struggling. And so he desperately wanted them re removed. This just reminds me, too, of the power of words, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot about that term, um, intergenerational poverty, Right. And what happens if you um, that, that 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 phrasing blames the victims, right, that that blames the people who are impoverished. And what if you instead turn this and I'll, I'll um, give credit to Paul Gorski for this to intergenerational economic injustice and how that shifts where the locus of control is, where the blame is put. Right. And so I think I'm thinking about how we continue in this country to this day to criminalize poverty. We do. Um, and every day there's more and more laws that are passed that, that um, perpetuate this intergenerational poverty. 
it, that they want it to continue. That's the only way upper class will survive if there's poverty because they become the workers. Um, this, this twist with the immigrants um, and slowing down the um, people coming over our southern border is, is not new. I mean, in 1924, Calvin Coolidge from Vermont passed laws to limit immigration. He passed laws to turn ships back filled with Jews seeking asylum. And, um, and so every time a new law is created, it limits what's within the borders of this experiment, if that's what you want to call it. Um, this thought of a melting pot <coughs> where all people come in from all different cultures into the pot and are mixed and boiled and come out together, red, white, and blue Americans, is, is interesting to me because my father and my grandfather were plumbers. And as a child, my job was to take the melting pot and to take the metals that they used and melt them in the pot. And the pure sunk to the bottom and the impurities floated to the top and my job was to scrape out the impurities so only the pure were left in the pot. So a true melting pot is doing exactly what they had thought, which is to mix all these people together, create laws to control them, and the pure will be left in the pot. Yeah. Oh, I never thought of that image that way. Thank you. Or not. Um, it's, uh, yeah. It's frightening, isn't it? Well, and I think just what you said about decriminalizing or criminalizing poverty as well, right? Like the economic, our economic system creates poverty and then criminalizes it, right? Like when, you know, we can't have both ways. We can't right. both create it and then tell those folks they're wrong, right? Well, we can have it because it's existing. Yes. We shouldn't have it. <laughs> I agree. Thank you for that. Yeah. So one of my um, favorite parts of uh, this book is um, as Howie begins to sort of wake up a little bit and um, question his beliefs is on page 82. And I got to admit, it's because I'm a librarian. Um, he, um, the librarian has given him um, the last of the Mohicans. And uh he says, I had asked Mrs. Rosen if she could find me a good book about Indians, not just any Indians, but the Indians who lived around here. She had raised one long finger, the one with a black beauty painted on the nail. James Fenimore Cooper, she said. Then she walked her fingers along the shelf behind her without even looking and pulled out the book. I was already 10 chapters into the long novel. Just as she told me, it took place right on our own river back in the colonial times. I am pleased to say we have many better choices these days, I think. Not as many as we would hope necessarily, but there are a lot of better choices for um, uh, young adult and middle grades uh, and picture books. Um, do you have any that you would recommend besides the ones you recommended earlier? Sure. Um, actually, I'm, I'm smiling because the soundtrack from the movie Last of the Mohegans was um, the song my son listened to 
before he went into wrestling matches in high school. It was something that motivated him to get in there <laughs> into the mats and and battle. So I'm chuckling to think that he read The Last of the Mohegan. But um, for books, um, there's so many I can think of. Um, it's difficult to um, for teachers sometimes to find just the right books. But there's a website called Oyate, O-Y-A-T-E dot org. And there they carry books um, written by Native people and reviewed by Native people for cultural appropriateness and historical accuracy. Um, there's also several books called, um, one called Through Indian Eyes and one call, called A Broken Flute, edited by Seal and Beverly Slapin. And those two books are filled with reviews on what's a good book, what isn't a book. And Doris it was from Guilford, Vermont. And um, she was um, one of those people who spent the first three years of her life living in a tent on Broad Brook. And um, her, her parents, her mother died of polio. Her father was institutionalized at Brattleboro Retreat because they believed um, he couldn't take care of the three girls. And the girls were sent to Kernhattan all during this period of time. And so um, Doris was raised in an institution. And, um, and so those two books, um, A Broken Flute and Through Indian Eyes, um, have a lot of that perspective written into the reviews that Doris did. Mm. And um, I think those would be great resources for anybody. Also, there's two books by Lisa Brooks. One is called um, The Common Pot, and the other one is called Beloved Kin. Those two are also good resources in understanding um, King Philip's War, understanding the land that we live on, and, um, and the connection that Ndakina, or this land, played with um, the role it played with King Philip's War. Mm. Those are great suggestions. And what I, one of the things I've learned from you, Judy, just because a book features a main character who is um, Native or um, Native American or Indian or Abenaki doesn't mean that it's a book you want in your classroom. I wondered if you could talk through some of the things you're looking for um, if you're thinking about whether it's good, a good representational book or a book you'd want kids exposed to? Yeah, um, I think it's um, a matter of learning how to identify the difference um, between one that's a, a book that's appropriate and a book that's not appropriate. So um, you want to look for books where indigenous people are not objectified. Um, you want to look for books where the text and um, reflect language used by both indigenous people and um, non-indigenous people equally. So one is not a warring savage and one is just a warrior. They're both warriors. Um, and illustrations that depict 
um, not just the past or people with bright red or bright, bright orange faces. Um, you want to reflect differences in color and size and whatever. Um, let's see. The text, the illustrations, vocabulary, you want to look at all of that. This is super helpful, and it reminds me um, uh, good friends of mine back when I um, was in college, um, when somebody would talk about when Halloween would come and people would dress up. This was in the 90s, and, and although folks still do it, would dress up like an Indian. And I've got some air quotes around that. Um, my friend Joe Morales would say, um, what are you wearing, blue jeans? Like, you know, sort of this, this um, the way we stick some people in the past is its own kind of erasure and um, assume that they, are, they still dress a certain way that is primarily just propaganda in our textbooks, right? Right. Um, and the other thing which, which you're alluding to is stereotypes. Um, I can't tell you the books um, so filled with stereotypes that I just want to be ill over. It's, um, I'm thinking, I can't get out of my mind right now, is Jody Pico's book called Second Glance. I think I counted like 12 stereotypes that are carried throughout the book. And um, she says she based that book on, um, on Nancy Gallagher's book, but I don't see where she even read one word of it because there's nothing historically accurate in what she portrays in in it in the book. But then again, it's fiction. Well, and I think you get at something interesting. I've thought a lot about how um, stereotypes aren't just um, sort of the warring, the war path on the war path kind of Indian stereotype. Also, the noble savage, right? or the docile um, squaw kind of our stereotypes, even if they seem like, oh, there's nothing wrong with that. It portrays this one way right? or this dual way of being. Right. Or being relentlessly um, environmental, um, environmentally concerned or, or the drunken Indian or the lazy Indian um, or the ignorant Indian. Those are all stereotypes you often see in books that that um, cause trauma in people. To it's the same subjective language that was used during the eugenics period. And it's one thing um, to hear it; it's another to see it permanently written in black and white. Right. And so that's why I started all this research and started documenting some of this stuff for my grandchildren they need to know it's subjective that it's people that hate it's people that that don't want to see that there's a difference and don't want to embrace those differences and so that makes me also think about the importance then of own voices stories like joseph ruchak this is an own voice story in a lot of ways isn't it own voice Oh. Meaning that the people, the characters are being written about somebody who shares their um, ethnic identity with them. Yeah, um, you have to feel safe in order to share that. And, and that goes back to what I said about my father. He did not want me to share it. He was worried for me. And, um, and for a while, so was I. But then when I reached a point of, of being a grandmother, things changed and I felt I needed to be more of an activist 
to help protect the lives that they're going to lead. Yeah. And keep the life waves and uh, uh, alive for their children, their grandchildren. They say um, uh, when you're looking at seven ge- generations, you put, should put yourself in the middle and your actions and your words should look backwards three generations and forward three generations and how your actions and your words might impact all of those generations. You're definitely looking forwards. I am now at this point in my life, yeah. I think when I was younger and my kids were little, it was like one day at a time. I just got to get through this day. <laughs> but now I'm I'm looking more towards um, trying to correct the errors that were done in the past in Vermont and trying to look forward to future generations and helping creating to create an understanding. Yeah. I'm so glad you're doing this work. I'm going to pull us back to Howie a little bit and Hidden Roots. Okay. I'm thinking about the first time I read this book was a really long time ago. And um, I really liked it. It's a quiet little book in a lot of ways. It, it's quiet on the surface. And then there's a lot of um, noise deep down, right, in, mm-hmm. the, in the family trauma and the history. Um, since that first time reading it and this time, I've actually learned a lot more about eugenics, um, specifically from you in doing um, a eugenics bus tour around Burlington and in hearing you talk about your scholarship. And, um, and so rereading it, having learned from you and having done a little more reading about eugenics, made it a very different experience for me. And so my question for you is, how would you recommend that teachers teach this book in the classroom or use this book in the classroom? Well, I think um, I, I'll start with this. A lot of teachers don't want to use this book because of the violence from the father, from Jake. And um, so they, they don't want to be put in a place to address violence. And I think that in this particular case, this is a lesson on historical trauma, generational violence. And in order to address it and understand it, the book really helps. So um, that would be one thing I would do. Um, I've done several projects with several schools. So for instance, and with Corey Sorensen in uh, Guilford Elementary School, they, um, we researched who the eugenicists were from their surrounding area. And um, then we went to the library and we did Um, used primary sources to do research to find out where they lived, what their job was, and a few other details. And so the students learned that the eugenicists were like the principal of the high school or a judge or a lawyer. They learned many different things. And then we took the addresses, got on the school bus, rode around town and found the addresses and um, marked them, created waypoints with a GPS and um, then we went back to the classroom, created digital maps, and we created new mnemonic devices to help them retell the story of the person they studied. And so they might weave into a basket or burn on a piece of leather or create some kind of map, some kind of story that helps them to record and talk about the untold story that they uncovered. And... Um, that was a very um, 
fruitful event. We did some amazing things in that class. The kids learned some amazing story and they did original research, which was phenomenal. And they were only in fourth grade, but they knew right from wrong. They knew very basics. And I didn't have to go into detail on some of the words like sterilization. I'm like, they just made it so they can't have babies anymore. You know, and I think these difficult topics are often put on the shelf, but passed over because teachers are afraid to address them. And um, so another thing I recently did was with an eighth grade class and um, I set up four stations, divided the class up and, and the teacher and I worked together at this and I got all, all these um primary sources um, and place them at each table with a list of questions that could be answered from the primary sources. So I gave them a 10 minute overview of eugenics with a PowerPoint. And then they had to research the questions and finish the story um, and report back to the class. And uh, that was a simple like 70 minute um, program. And they were able to use the primary sources to answer the questions, retell to the story what the story to the rest of the, their classmates, and then um, and then uh, they had the complete story of the Vermont Eugenics Survey. And they had used primary sources. They had um, done the research themselves, and so it was kind of a exploration and discovery event for them. This feels so important to our real understanding of Vermont um, and also teaching kids this this darker history of Vermont, this um, maybe this history that we're not as proud of, we're definitely not proud of, um, feels like preparation for understanding when we're at danger of traveling these paths again. One of the things I often struggle with or find problematic is that in just about every elementary school across this country, uh, there's always the Native American unit. It's often in fourth grade, right? Like uh, maybe it's around Thanksgiving time, right? There's the like, well, we do the Native American unit. And um, one group studies the Hopi and another group studies the Cherokee, right? And um, I guess I guess I'm asking you for advice about this um, and for your perspective on how we might do better. Um, I don't see myself as a study of a unit of study. <laughs> um, however, I'm very pleased with H3, the passing of H3 and the study of ethnic studies, because I do see in my ancestors as scientists, mathematicians, artists, and historians. And um, so this gives me an opportunity to show teachers how to do that, going into the classroom and saying, you know, look at these, these complex games that talk probability and odds. Um, look at this, um, um, this issue of eugenics or, you know, the native technology they created with the changes in flora, fauna, climate, and geology from paleoarchaic and woodland, and the adaptation that occurred at contact period. You know, these people were brilliant. And um, if you don't believe me, look around the world today, because a lot of their technology is still being used. 
And um, so that's why um, I'm pleased with the passing of H3. And we're hoping to have a conference in the spring at the Brattleboro High School to share some of this these experiences and I've talked with several people at the Vermont Coalition and we're hoping that they can come and share standards with us at the same time. If folks want to learn more should they look at the Gadankadao website? Yeah we'll post it there as will probably the Brattleboro um, school district. Great. Um, do you have anything else that you might recommend to Vermont educators? Any other uh, words of wisdom for us about um, this book in um, particular or just about um, how we could uh, bring the Abenaki, the people whose land we're on, um, into our classrooms? Well, there's a lot of important things, but um, the first is to um, look at, to not look that, at them as generic. So the example you gave, like the Southeast and the Southwest and the Northwest and dividing your classes up into those um, can be problematic because teachers often say, um, oh, let's study what their lodges look like. What food did they eat? How do they dress? And so they address differences, but they leave them dangling back 500 years ago. And they usually do this with the age group that's learning about timeline. And so if you end us back at 500 years ago, um, and don't say we lived in, we live in apartments and condos and trailers and houses today, there's a big gap in the story that you're asking them to learn. So that would be the first thing I would say. I think um, there's other things to understand that there's not a generic Indian and that each nation is different in many ways with their ethnics, eth with their ethics, morals and values and beliefs and that those things are critical to who they are and how they live. And um, I think eugenics is often um, twisted and distorted. And the primary sources are available at the state archives. And so I think whenever possible, it's great to use primary sources to figure it out yourself. Mm. And we want our children to form an opinion um, as the core curriculum states, right? But um, but we can't just give them our opinion. We have to allow them and give them the opportunities to use resources that help them to form the opinion so they hear from all sides, all perspectives. What I hear from you is not to teach them history, but to teach them the tools of being a historian. Yes. Yeah. And having um, learned a lot from you about the eugenics movement and the way you've used primary sources uh, and, you know, used maps and other documents to really tell the story of um, eugenics in Burlington, I'm really inspired by the idea that kids could do that in their communities. They can. I, I sort of look at education as a form of um, exploration, experiences, and observations. 
And if we ask them to do those things and give them the tools to do them, they're going to be able to develop their own opinion in a more um, balanced way. Yeah, in an informed way. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. Oh, Judy, I could talk to you forever. Are there any other last words you want to leave us with? I just want to inform people that they too need to form an opinion and it could be life changing. Yeah. We have to continue to pay attention. We do. Every day. Vigilance. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time for inviting me into your wonderful home with all of your art and your pottery and your Judy's an incredible artist, you guys. Um, with all of this beautiful, um, what's the word I'm looking for? This beautiful evidence of who you are and how you carry yourself in the world. I'm so grateful to be here. Um, thank you. Thank you. I'm Jeannie Phillips, and this has been an episode of Vermont Ed Reads, talking about what Vermont's educators and students are reading. Thank you so much to Judy Dow for appearing on the show and talking with me about Hidden Roots. If you're looking for a copy of Hidden Roots, check your local library. To find out more about Vermont Ed Reads, including past episodes, upcoming guests and reads, and a whole lot more, you can visit vtedreads.terraninstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at vtedreads. This podcast is a project of the Tarrant Institute for Innovative Education at the University of Vermont. You know what would fit nicely at that end is that poem. So this poem um, what came to me in a dream. I have a presentation at um, a museum in Queens right now on eugenics. And... Um, I'm going to present to the students and the docents who are 80 and 90 year old Jews that work at this museum in March. And so I had this brainstorm of creating this poem and I um, I ran it by my dear friend, Veranda Porsche, who is a poet. And I said, here's my outline, here's my audience, here's my story, will you help me make this into a poem? So I'd like to read to you what we have now. Remember this. First they came for the people of Turtle Island who were at one with the land. Few spoke up for the protectors who fought back. Then they came for the Africans, the, the soil and songs of home still on their tongues, and they chained the resistors for centuries. Then they called in Chinese laborers to tunnel through mountains, defying a dream of rail connection coast to coast. Famished laborers staged the largest strike of a generation. And then they created quotas and broke up the poorest families, people of color, welcoming only those so white their skin shined into the land of opportunity. Then they tackled the Jewish problem. U.S. eugenicists conferred with German fascists and advised the president to isolate, eliminate. He rejected the refugee ship St. Louis from our shores. Survivors swore history will repeat itself. Remember us. They turned a blind eye to others deemed unworthy of life. The Roma, deviants, the mentally frail, audacious partisans burned. Then they branded citizens of Japanese descent, the Yellow Peril, and herded them into trains headed toward desolation 
despite the shame of interment survivors decades later, won reparation. Then they greeted asylum seekers at the border who divided, who divide and conquer. Children torn from parents' arms were caged and lost in the system, wrapped in foil blankets. Children rocked children. And we named the plagues, addiction, eugenics, homophobia, Islamophobia, human trafficking, lynching, mass incarceration, patriarchy, poverty, racism, violence against women and Mother Earth. And now we praise the strength of those scorned and silenced and speak of the beauty, unbroken, and the valor within their stories. That was beautiful. Thank you. Thank you.